All right, well, let, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection implored thy help or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly into thee, O virgins of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come before the eyes stand, sinful and sorrowful. O mother of the word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the, uh, the talk I was asked to give, the exact title is eluding me. Um, it was, it was all over the place around here, and this morning I went around hunting for it. It's like, I should know exactly what it is. I don't... Uh, it, 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 to my best knowledge, it was basically Schoenstatt's answer to the ills of our present age. Basically, the tumultuous time that we live in, the, the generation that we all live in, and uh, that we're all in some ways part of, what's basically the response? What's, how is Schoenstatt part of the solution? And how is it part of the answer and just an incredible response to everything uh, that we face as, uh, as, a, as a church, as a culture, as people living in the 21st century of America? And so what I wanted to do is basically um, what are the ills of our present time, right? And, you know, you could, you could, you could get a hold of doctoral degree on that. Um, what were the ills of the founding time of Schoenstatt, right? What, were, what was going on when Father Kentenich founded it in 1914? Uh, spoiler alert, it's not so different from now. Um, and then what's Mary's response, how Mary is really a great answer, and then how that's lived out in Schoenstatt. So that's kind of the, the journey. What are the ills? What were the ills of Father Kentenich's time and how Mary in the Schoenstatt life is a response to that. And because I have to prepare a Sunday homily to give later today, I've been thinking of all this in terms of this Sunday's gospel, so that's going to play a big part. So I'd just like to read this Sunday's gospel to start. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever you ask of you. He replied, What do you wish me to do for you? They answered him, Grant that in your glory we may sit, one at your right and the other at your left. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We can. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right and at my left, it is not mine to give, but is for those to whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant at James and John. Jesus summoned them and said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John really aren't so different from, from any of us, and hopefully, as, you, as you've, you've probably heard that gospel a thousand times before, but 
that they're, they're, they're not so different from us. Um, and we'll, we'll keep circling back, hopefully, to the gospel if I keep remembering where I want to go. Um, but the ills of our present age, I heard a story, and I know it's true, I just don't remember how I, where I heard it. I don't remember if somebody was telling me this or if I read about it, like what hand I, I heard it, but it, it was a story that you just don't forget. And so I, I just absolutely certain this is true. This person got in a conversation with somebody else about abortion, about whether, you know, what and everything that goes along with it. And, you know, the accusation was made, you know, like you pro-lifers don't actually care about women. And of course, the response is, well, yeah, yeah, actually we do. Like, think about all the unborn women that we care about, and we ultimately want what's best for these pregnant women. Well, then it's like, well, it's, it's actually her body. It's her choice. She can do whatever she wants with this. And, you know, the response is, it's not a, it's not a choice. It's a, it's a human being. It's a, living, it's a living child. And this just kept going back and forth. And it's like, well, this child is going to be brought in, right? If it's, a, if it's somebody who's unwanted, this child's going to be brought into poverty. They're not going to have a father. And you Christians, you're always talking about how bad the family situation is. Why are we bringing kids into this when they're just going to experience all of this, all of this bad stuff? And, and the, the person who was conversing with kind of the, the pro-abortion advocate was beginning to realize what was going on, right? Of, well, what are, what are you actually saying? Like, what, what are you, what's going on here? Because, like, you can hear in your voice, there's a lot of pain, right? This isn't, this isn't a political thing. There's pain there. And as they kept conversing and they kept getting closer to the heart of the matter, the person said, well, at the root of it is, I kind of wish my life my life has been so terrible that I wish my life had been aborted. Like, well, that, that's really the heart of it, isn't it? Right? It's such, an, and, and so, I mean, like, there's a whole thing of how we do pro-life ministry that we should learn from that example. That what it is, this isn't all political. This is people that are here who are struggling with the, the value of a human life, especially their own, Right? And that's ultimately where the ills of our present age, I think, stem from. What does it mean to be human? What does it actually mean to be a human being? And is our life good? Is it valuable? Is it, is it something that can just be thrown away? Not just other people's, but our own. And that's things that people struggle with. I mean, you just look at all the, the different things that our world deals with, whether it's an increase of suicide, whether it's an increase of, of drug abuse, whether it, whatever it may be, depression, all of these things. The question is, is life good? Is life worth living? Or is this something we can just throw away? And this shows up in, in, so, many, in so many different ways, this kind of twisted view of humanity in so many um, in so many issues, like so many different ways it can be seen, and and maybe as I kind of like walk through some of these, the the thing ha we, what we have to wrestle with is it, it's not just out there, right? It, it's not just these people in the world don't see it. All of us, especially you know younger people like myself, we grew up in this, right? We're not really that different. I mean, we grew up in the same culture, we grew up in the same world, we grew up in the same news media. It's, it's, it's not going to be helpful for us to point the finger and say, you know, this is the ills of the present age. There was a, a, great, a great writer that helped bring down the Soviet Union after spending 10 years in the gulag named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. 
And one of the great lines that he said is the line between good and evil runs right through the human heart. That it's not these people are good, these people are bad. It's actually, it's right here. So that's what we have to wrestle with. Is these things aren't just out there. They're, they're, they're in a battle in our own hearts. So so many different, so many different things, right? Maybe one of them is so, so when we don't realize that we're a beloved child of God, we, we look for this in so many other places. And, you know, we see this, like, group identity stuff. You, know, you call it, like, identity politics. Uh, or even, like, uh, you know, it's, it's all about a race, right? We turn in the whole thing, and, you know, I don't want to name too many things because I am recording this, and it's going to go on the Internet, so you don't, you know, I don't want to be canceled. Uh, but maybe I shouldn't worry about that. That's a whole difference for my spiritual director. But, um, but you, I mean, you think about this, all the politics that's just done, right, conservative, liberal, who, who, we, who we identify with is primarily not as a beloved child of God. It's, it's a political party. It's whose sign we put in our, our yard every four years in November. It's which news channel we, walk, we watch. That it's this identity of our group is good, the other group is bad. And, and we, all get, we all get part of this. I mean, even I, you know, even can get into apologetics. You know, you're talking to other Christians, like, we're good, you're bad. It's like, well, we've got the fullness of the truth, but, um, but that doesn't mean everybody else is evil. Now, I'm not saying there's not evil out there, but it's not in human beings, right? It, all of us are dealing with that in the heart. Then maybe another I- issue of the time because, we, because we, we struggle with what it means to be human and what it means to be a human being is that, is that we, we avoid suffering. You know, we've been accustomed to so much comfort and, and all of us have been that way in our own lives, right? Life compared to 200 years ago is so much easier, right? I, I could almost go a whole day and not have to walk like a quarter mile. Right? Like in a total life, I, a total day, you wouldn't have to walk a total mile from just going to the car to, to the office to even, you know, celebrating mass and standing a whole lot. It's like we could go a whole day and it, life is just so darn easy. I mean, I wouldn't even have to spend more than 10 minutes preparing three meals between a microwave and my own laziness, right? <laughs> but, um, but I found this quote, man no longer understands himself to be a pilgrim on a meaningful journey with others, but a tourist who travels through life according to his own self-designed itinerary with personal happiness is its ultimate goal. This whole basic, I love that idea of that we're just here as a a tourist, right? And just trying to get, get the best out of whatever we can to maximize the benefit of this vacation that we're on called life. Instead of one to say, well, this life actually has a whole lot of meaning. It's not just let's minimize anxiety and build up comfort, but there's actually something a whole lot more than that. And then maybe another thing. So we got an avoidance of suffering, this whole group identity business, a loss of faith in politics or in society in general. Man, that I, I just see that myself so often. Like, ugh, it's just awful. Like, everything in Washington, D.C., I mean, that's the devil's playground. Nothing will ever come good from that. But it says something when our whole, we have just an entire loss of faith and identity. And you know where else that happened? That happened in the 1920s in Germany. At the end of World War I, they lost faith in their government, that they thought nothing good will ever come of this government. Things are so awful. And what did it leave them ripe for? 
a totalitarian dictator to swoop right in and be the savior, to be the one that's going to lead everybody against everything that's corrupt in the world. And man, we're not so far from that, right? We look around and we just, there's so much like, oh, things are so awful, um, you know? And, and even you think about like a government class that, that kids go to in high school is, is not, and even probably more college, it's not so much about how the government can serve a society. It's actually, why is the government so screwed up? Whatever, right? Like, and how it's oppressed people. And whatever side you are, right, you could, it doesn't matter what, you're, what it is. It's, it's basically the same story with the different, different characters in it. Whether it's, you know, the, um, uh, maybe on one end you might say, well, there's these, there's these money-grabbing corporations that have gotten too involved in the government and they, everything's just run by the dollar. Or it's, it's, you know, there's just a complete loss of faith that it can do anything. So we got that. That's, that's great. Um, and then also on top of that is this loneliness. And I think, I think there's, there's so many stats out there that just show how, how lonely and how isolated people have become. And you just think, like, how often are people in, knowing their neighbors, right? Like, your neighbors, we don't know each other anymore. There's this, like, um, isolation where people aren't just coming over for, for dinner as much as they used to. Just this and just kind of this boredom, right? That nothing really ever excites anybody. And you can see this just kind of in general, like just people kind of like, I don't know, vanilla-ing through life, right? Just kind of flowing through life. And there's no like, there's no passion. There's no like adventure. There's no sense of there's something out there worth living and life is good and it's textured and it's vibrant. And, and you know, it's, it's one of the beautiful things about having stained glass window in the church as we're kind of renovating those. Sorry if you're getting blinded by the light over there. But it shows that there's this vibrancy to the life and that saints live a vibrant life, that it's not just this kind of this, this boredom and how much time spe- people are spending uh, watching TV by themselves or surfing the internet alone and, and that it just social interaction that makes things life worth living is rough. And just as we're going through these, so this is, you know, this is all pretty bad news. So we'll, we'll get to the end of this pretty quickly, hopefully. And, and even um, a loyalty above competence, right? Like there, that's, and I don't know where this all comes from, right? I'm not like a doctor of philosophy, but I just read this somewhere and it, it seemed really interesting. Just we value loyalty over competence. And even I kind of alluded to it, like the cancel culture, right? You say one thing that's wrong, boom, you're done. Right there was a guy that um, that helped found. Uh, shoot, what was it? He was a major internet mogul named Brendan Ike. And in 2014, somebody went over donor records from Proposition 8 in 2008 in California. So if you remember, Proposition 8 was this division about same-sex marriage in California. They found out that this guy that helped found JavaScript. Um, had donated a small donation in 2008. Six years later, they found it out. He was pushed out of his company. What is that? That's just, and then, you know, and that's one end. But then there's also, you know, uh, President Trump at one point said, I value loyalty above all else, more than brains, more than drive, and more than energy. Ooh, yeah. I mean, so whether you're getting canceled because you donate to uh, a, a, 
traditional marriage group or whether you're a member of a president's cabinet and you get canceled quickly. Like, this is everywhere, right? It's not just one side or the other. This is part of the culture that we live in, that there's, there's no mercy. There's no forgiveness. There's no sense of, hey, yeah, that's not right. Let's do better next time. It's boom, you're done. And that's, you know, that's horrendous. So, sum it up. It's all about this power, right? That you, you see James and John, they want to have the glory and the kingdom. There's no suffering. And that's James and John too, right? We want to sit one at your right and one at your left. And Jesus presents them like, you know how you're going to get there. Well, the first thing, all right, if I was Jesus, this is, and I'm not, right? First thing I would say, <laughs> all my parishioners know that for sure. Uh, you want to sit one on my right, one on my left. All right, first of all, seat's taken on the right, right? Mom's sitting there so all you guys can back up off. <laughs> if my mom listens to this, that one's for you, Mom. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so there's, there's that. And then they, they want it without, the, they're, they're thinking this Davidic kingdom, right? You're going to ride in in glory and we're going to be this, this crew that's here with you. It's like, and we want to be the ones there. And then you get the snarling, the other ten, like, Oh, we wanted those seats. So it's this just, um, you know, and, and from it, you get this loss of faith and humanity, right? And these two guys, right? Let's just worry about ourselves. This whole group, we don't know what's going to happen to the 12, but we're brothers. We got to look out for each other. Let's see if we can get these, these two great, great seats. And even this, this loneliness, because they completely miss the bigger picture, right? They're so focused James and John on a little thing in this gospel. You know when this gospel happens? It happens immediately after the third time Jesus tells them that he's going to go up to Jerusalem, be persecuted, be crucified, died, and rise again on the third day. And the response, because they're missing everything, is let's sit one at your right, one at your left. So the response. And I guess, first of all, and I've kind of alluded to it, Schoenstatt was founded, of course, October 18, 1914, right, on the, the, right before World War I starts, going to be big in that inner the time in between the two world wars as Hitler's coming to power. And Father Kentenick says this in 1932, and this is just remark- remarkable. The world today is confronted with a new heresy of gigantic proportions. This is in 1932. In face, at present, we can only sense somewhat these proportions. We don't really know them yet. These are anthropological heresies. So basically, heresies about what it means to be human. It is not God who is primarily and directly the center of the heresies. The heresies we face are of gigantic proportions in humanity, Human nature is directly at issue, the anthropological heresy. Who will help us? And that's, that's basically what, what the, the question that he sees it as. And of course you know who's going to help him. I mean, it's, it's going to be the mother thrice admirable. She's going to be the one that he realizes is this, this, um, this answer to the issue. And it's no surprise that as things were, were growing, you know, he says this in 1932, that, uh, that Hitler wanted, wanted Schoenstatt out of the way. I mean, Father Kentenich, as you probably know, was imprisoned in Dachau for, I believe, three and a half years. 
And, um, and so what, as, as he sees the rise of the Nazi power, he says that what he wants to do is to spiritually immunize his listeners against national socialism, ensure clarity in the discernment of spirits, and formulate a countervision against the Nazi ideology based on the Christian image of the human person. Wherever the great flood comes, our ark must be ready to build this ark because the storms are coming. And, and so he looks to Mary to do this, right? He looks to Mary as the one that's going to be the great answer as to what it means to be human because she's, she's the immaculate conception, right? She's the immaculata. She's conceived without sin. She's the perfect image of what it means to be a human being. And so Mary's going to give this extremely direct and perfect answer and then because she's the great educator, she's the one that can form, form us after, after the likeness of her son, she's going to be the one we go to, not only to be the example, but also to be the educator, to be the teacher, to be the guide, to be the, to the instrument to do this. And he sees this. So, um, so um, Father Kentenich says, In Schoenstatt, the Blessed Mother shall educate men and women of all classes of society who as her instruments are able to form the church in our technological era according to the plan of the eternal God. She wants to educate apostles who have the great mission to imprint the image of Christ upon the revolutionary world of today and tomorrow and to place a new world at the feet of the eternal Father. And so there's a real difference between how we see the issues of the day from Mary's vantage point versus James and John in this gospel. The James and John idea is, well, we want to have the power to basically be your king as you're going to overthrow these Roman authorities. Right? What's the answer to the ills? Is it going to be one of a power play? Is it going to be one of let's get armed in revolt? Probably not the center of it, right? There, who knows? I don't know what's going to happen in the next couple decades or whatever. But I know the absolute answer every time is going to be to become like Mary. And that's what everybody, all the great resistors to, the, to totalitarianism, the Soviets, everybody in a gulag who survived and actually came out better realized that the transformation was not them going to get out their guns and overthrow the Bolsheviks. It was actually something deeply interior that happened. And it's something in the very depths of the human soul that has to be inflamed, that has to take an incredibly deep root that's going to actually change things. And it's so upside down from even how we think, right? How we think the answers are going to be to these issues is if we campaign, if we support the right politicians and all that. And there's, of course, a place to do that in the public life. But, the re- but if we forget the primary means of resisting evils and issues in our time, that it's interior, that it's actually the fact that humanity's forgotten who it is, because ultimately, all of this is an attack on God's fatherhood. If we forget who we are as human beings, it means because we don't trust God to show us. If we forget, every, every issue is really an attack on God's fatherhood. 
even if, if that he's really a good God, that he actually really cares about us, that he's actually one that, that's there to bring us to the sun, that's bring us to heaven? Or is he one that just lays the law on us? Is he one that just kind of thumbs his nose and gives us all of these meaningless rules that are arbitrary, whether they're believed or they're not? And that's the wisdom of Father Kentonick talking about the Marian kingdom of the Father. I don't know if I got that terminology right, but this kingdom that, of the Father's kingdom, right? That, that Mary wants to show us that God's really a good Father. And this kingdom is not going to be one of buildings, is not going to be one of institutional power, where the Cardinal Archbishop of Washington, D.C. could call the president and tell him he's wrong on this and he needs to consider what the Catholic Church teaches. Like, that's not going to be the kingdom that we're going to be in for for the next 50 years. It's going to be a kingdom that souls are transformed by the power of the gospel and Mary forming them to become great saints. That's going to be the answer to the time. And that's what Father, with Father Shun, or Father Shunstadt, Father, <laughs> Father Kentenich shows. And it's ultimately because it's what, what Mary shows. You know, one of the great evils of our time are just part of the issues with human nature that I mentioned is the avoidance of suffering, is let's just maximize the pleasure. We're a tourist on this life. Let's just have as good a time as possible. What, what does Mary show us? Well, Mary, from the very beginning, 40 days after having this child, as she presents him in the temple with Joseph, the sword will pierce your heart. And it does, of course, on Calvary, right? She stays right there by suffering, right? She doesn't run from it. She doesn't, she doesn't hide from it. Then also, she doesn't pick up a club and try to beat a soldier, right? And I think maybe Mama Bear would do that. But Mary is there in suffering, and she doesn't run from it. She doesn't hide from it. She stays there. And so she gives that great answer of suffering. And then there's this whole loss of faith, right? I mentioned this loss of faith in politics, this loss of faith in society, in the future, in the young, whatever, whatever it may be is, hmm, what was I going to say about this? I thought I had something. Oh, well, we'll circle back to that one. Maybe the loneliness, right? So the loneliness as this great issue that, that our time faces. Mary, and with that loneliness comes all sorts of anxiety and, and just kind of worry. Mary receives an angel, she has this mystical experience of the angel Gabriel coming, saying, hey, I want you to be the mother of the Messiah. Any normal person after that would be like, whew, that seems like a lot, right? Like, I, I don't know if I can do that, right? The weight, the gravity of what she's invited to do just has to, has to weigh heavily. What's Mary's immediate response? The angel departed from her, and she says, Oh, wait a minute. That angel said that Elizabeth is having a baby and, oh, she is old. I should go and help her. Right? Like, that's Mary's immediate response is not to say, oh, I got to, oh, this is a lot. I don't know. Like, she doesn't turn inwardly on herself. She doesn't close up, even in prayer. And I'm sure she's wrestling this the whole journey, the three-day journey down to the hills, the hills uh, uh, where, uh, where John and John's born. But she goes to somebody else, right? She has this, this human community, this human family that she's a part of. And so she goes to serve another human being. And she gives that great example. This is actually 
what you do when things get heavy is you actually find somebody and, and serve her. And there's a great, uh, you know, I, um, one of the, the stained glass windows at, at St. Joseph up in Wapakoneta is of the visitation. And you see Mary, Mary meeting Elizabeth in this great embrace. But then in the background is Joseph and Zechariah meeting each other. And it's interesting for a couple reasons. One, Zechariah is still mute at this point. So you think, what is Joseph saying to him, right? <laughs> Joseph's a man of silence himself. So maybe these two guys just show up and they're just like, shake hands, and they just stand there. It's like, huh, it's a great image of guys. Uh, <laughs> um, but Mary and Joseph making that journey together, right? This focus on the family. And that's actually going to have to be our own focus in these coming years, is that actually the family is going to be the cell that's going to save society. Right? The family joining together in prayer and worship of, of just family customs. It's why the, the, the dedication of the home shrine is such a brilliant Absolutely. And, you know, it's probably not like Father Kentonick thought this whole thing through about what they're going to need in 2021 is, you know, they're, they're running these kids all over the place. People need a place that's dedicated to Mary in their homes. But that's the great, that's the great insight and the brilliance of this is let's gather the family here. Let's do something ritually that they know this is being dedicated to remember, to actually, and that's what rituals in some ways do. They help form our identity. Right? It's, it's why, you know, everybody just, when the national anthem starts, everybody pops off and people take their hats off. Well, it's this kind of, the ritual helps create this identity that has been lost. And so those rituals, those family things that, that a family does, even if it's like, you're not going to, or we're going to gather on Sunday to pray the rosary every, every Sunday as a family. Like those things are what's going to be the, the, the way a family is going to just see it through the hard times. So Mary gives that, that great example. Loyalty above all else, right? I mentioned that with whether it's cancel culture, wherever that shows up, there's this great sense of loyalty. You know, Mary's present at Pentecost. Right? We hear in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, that Mary's there as the Holy Spirit um, comes down upon the Apostles. And you think that might be a little awkward for all the apostles, except John, right? All of them, 50 days, 51 days, 52 days before that, fled as her son is being scourged, being mocked, being beaten. They all just scatter, right? And you think, like, Mary could have been like, you guys... My son was there, and you betrayed them. You betrayed him. You abandoned him. And think about every mother's heart when you watch friends mistreat your child. It's not pleasant, right? That is something that just tears apart a mother to see her children mistreated by those that should care for, for him or her. And yet, Mary's still there, right? And she doesn't come in and wag the finger, kind of, you know, thumb Peter behind the ear, and how could you deny him three times? She's able to extend mercy. She's able to show grace, to show forgiveness, to extend mercy to these apostles. And who knows, you know, what interactions might have existed that we, don't, that we didn't get in the scriptures, but something happened to bring them back together then, even if it was just a gaze, or even if it's mom coming up to, to Peter and saying, 
I know, right? I forgive you. He forgives you. He forgave you. So there's all of that. Um, And at the crux of this, right, this interior life that Mary helps form is so brilliantly put. And we talked about the kingdom and right and how things probably out there are who knows what's going to happen. But there's a great line in um, that Jesus says, well, you know, they all are. But um, there's one in particular because he talks about the kingdom throughout the Gospels, right? And Father Kentinick was big about talking about the, the Marian Father kingdom, right? This kingdom that God wanted to build, that God continues to build. In Luke 17, verse 21, Jesus gives a whole different take on what the kingdom is. Or gives this insight, you know, there's this sense, you know, he gives all these parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that's planted and it grows into the largest of bushes. And you think, okay, that was kind of maybe the acts of the apostles, right? It's this large faith that's planted and then it grows all over. You know, Pentecost, they baptized thousands of people that day. In Luke 17, 20 and 21, asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he said in reply, the coming of the kingdom cannot be observed. And no one will announce, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Well, that's a whole different look at the kingdom, right? That it's not something that gets built through programs, that gets built through institutions, that gets built by brick and mortar or powerful or influential people. The kingdom of God is built right here in the human heart. And maybe something to think about in your own time, is to go through Matthew chapter 13. That's where Jesus lays out all of these kingdom parables, all of these parables about what the kingdom is. You say, those are actually what's supposed to take place in our own hearts. Those are ones that are actually going to, to take place to grow there. And what do we need to do to allow that to grow in our hearts? And Mary's the great example of that, whether it's to have strength through suffering, whether it's to allow our family, our friends, other people to guide us and to not isolate ourselves from them, or whether it means there's somebody maybe in our families, in our lives that we work with that we really need to forgive, and we can't just cancel their friendship, or we can't just, you know, cast them off. And Mary shows us all of these, these great examples of what it means to be a human being fully alive. And so often we... Uh, we miss that. But she's willing to teach us, and she's willing to show us. And as I was, you know, and I'll just kind of end on this. I mentioned all those parables in Matthew chapter 13 that, um, that Jesus, Jesus gives about the kingdom. And there's one that's kind of striking. They're all striking. Um, he spoke to them in another, so this is verse 33. He spoke to them in another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of wheat flour until the whole batch was leavened. Pretty straightforward parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. I don't know how much yeast you would need to use for three measures of wheat flour, but not as much as the wheat flour. But what's it take to be kneaded in there, took and mixed with these three measures, right? And you think about like working the yeast in there. I'm not a baker, so if this image is awful, somebody correct me. But to work in that yeast, right, to make sure it gets throughout the dough, takes this, whether it's mixing it, whether it's kneading it, and it's all through the hands 
of a woman. And you think about Mary doing that for our own interior life. The kingdom of God is like this yeast that a woman needs into our lives. As if the Blessed Virgin Mary takes all of this kingdom and works it into our lives so that the kingdom of God may permeate our souls, may permeate our entire lives. And that's what it means for Mary to be this educator of what it means to be a human being, of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And she's going to take the time. She's going to take the perseverance. She's going to take the love, the care, the concern to work it all into our lives. If we let her, of course, right? And that's what we have to be open to, is to see that in some ways we're just as sick as the rest of the world, right? We're just in need as a doctor, as need of as a Jesus to rescue us from the evils of our present time. And he brings so many people with us. He brings in a special way his blessed mother, who gives us the example, right? As she's this perfect human, as the answer to an all-out attack on what it means to be human. And she works with us to allow that kingdom of God not to exist, not to build buildings or not to do whatever, but to actually work in our hearts, to build a kingdom of God that is within. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen.